If you're new with us today, it's a great joy to open God's word with you. We're in a series in the book of Galatians. And I'd like to ask you to turn there with me to Galatians chapter four. It, about um, about uh, oh, 19, 20 years ago now, I was in the Holy Land and on a ministry trip there, and for security reasons, I had a driver. And uh, that was a huge help in terms of knowing what I was looking at and understanding what I was seeing. And I was in the West Bank, and we were driving towards Bethlehem. And we had to stop uh, on, the, on the road because a huge flock of sheep were crossing the road. You know, fancy that, sheep on the way to Bethlehem. Who knew? <laughs> so we stopped, and we're letting all these sheep go across. But I was, I was stunned to see, I was stunned to see the, the, this man behind him. And he was yelling at them, and he had a big stick, and he was beating a couple at the back, and he was berating them. And I'm quite sure that in his native tongue, um, a, a stream of profanity was coming from them, and he was yelling at them and hurrying them along and yelling and shouting. And I, I said to my driver, I said, you know, that's, I, I'm, I'm baffled by that. I said, I always thought that shepherds walked ahead of their people, and, and, and they followed they followed him, and he knew their name, and they were kind. And he turned to me, and he said, that's not the shepherd. That's the butcher. <laughs> Here endeth the lesson. <laughs> you know, uh, friends, one of the things that happens in the book of Galatians, this book of announcing and defending the great freedom from slavery to the law and sin and death that is given to us in Jesus Christ. And the penalty of the law has been paid. The curse of the law is taken away. One of the things that happens in this book where Paul not only corrects this community that's being led astray to a false gospel, which he says is no gospel at all, one of the things that happens in this letter where Paul defends the validity of the ministry that God's given him because false teachers had come in and were subverting those claims to authenticity and saying Paul was a false teacher and Paul was leading them astray. And he had to say, now, wait a minute. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's have a look here. In the middle of all of the strong words that he shares, we have this section that we're going to read here where you catch a glimpse of a shepherd's heart, of an apostolic heart, of the heart of Jesus inside the heart of his people and the way that looks. Jesus said, by this all men will know you are my disciples by the way you have love for one another. And you see that in this text today. Won't you read it with me? Galatians chapter four. We're gonna pick it up in verse 12. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, Become like me, I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, and even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? 
I can testify that if you could have done so, you'd have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. Now it is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Won't you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the heart of the Apostle Paul, the heart of Jesus that he shows in this text. As we turn to Galatians and we remember that it is a book of freedom for slavery, we thank you that we can mark in these days the end of slavery in this country, the great emancipation of four million people who had been bound. But Lord, our hearts can be still bound by sin, by bitterness, by anger. We pray that you would deliver us. As we turn to Galatians and we see Jesus paying the price to reconcile us and bring us through the Spirit's power home to the Father's heart, we cannot help but give you thanks for the perfect fatherhood of our God who has loved us to life. And we give you thanks for our imperfect fathers who have done their best. And Lord, where we have wounds, we pray those would be healed. Where we have the need for strength, we pray that you will find us in our weakness and bring your perfect power. And now, Lord, we turn to you, asking that the same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to first write these words would now be at work in our hearts and minds to inscribe them on our hearts, so that by them we might be transformed from the inside out. And we ask all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So there's a hope, a pastoral hope that Paul expresses in this text. It's right down here with, in, in verse 19. I, I want to I draw your attention to it again. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The heart of a shepherd is that the church would bear the image of Jesus. There's, twin, there's a twin mission in the church. There's the mission that God does through the church, which is to bring the gospel of Jesus to the world. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. So there's that work of the mission of the church in the world. But there's also a mission that God is at work at in the church so he can do something through the church. And that is conforming the people of the church to the image of Christ. And Paul is laboring that the image of Christ for which you and I have been destined by grace 
would be formed in these communities of people. He longs to see the heart of Jesus, the image of Jesus, the formation of Christ's life in their personal lives. And you know, friends, we're not, we're not there, are we? We have so far to go. John, the apostle, knew this too when he wrote, and he said in chapter three of, of his first letter, he says, behold what manner of love God has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. It has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I long for the day when I see Jesus perfectly. The vision and the beauty, the spectacular magnificence of Jesus Christ will be what changes us finally, utterly, and completely. And he says, all those who have this hope purify themselves. So right now, you and I are going through fiery trials. We go through challenges and difficulties. We deal with doubt and we deal with despair. We deal with our besetting sins and we're offering them up and saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. Please be at work in me through your word and your spirit and the sacraments so that I can be conformed to your very image. I can bear witness to your love in the world. Paul's laboring over that. He wants to see that. But you know, it's a slow process. In, um, in 1528, Martin Luther, preaching the gospel in his congregation, was so discouraged about the lack of the fruit of the Spirit in them that he threatened to stop preaching. And the elders had to persuade him to keep going. He, he came to believe that people didn't care what he was saying. In 1530, he got so discouraged, he, he gave up. In, from January to September of 1530, he just said, I can't, I, that's it, I'm done. I'm done. Paul says, I'm, I'm laboring, I have this hope, I wanna see Christ formed in your life. And then he says, he says, I wish I could be with you. I'm perplexed. You see this kind of language throughout the letter. He says, who's bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? What spirit has taken hold of you that you have become so hardened in your sensibilities to the beauty and the wonder of the gospel of Jesus? What's happened? I want you to come home. Come home to the Father. Come home to the beauty of grace. I long for that in you. Every, every leader in every sphere of the Christian church longs for that. It's not just pastors, though your pastors do. It's, it's the directors of women's ministries and men's ministries and small group ministries and children's ministries. Every single person who's leading in every sphere, whether you're teaching a Sunday school class, you're not just looking for a download of information, you're looking for the spirit to bring transformation. It's not just that we want people to be puffed up with knowledge and become brains on sticks. We want them to be people who are full of the Holy Spirit whose hearts beat with the passion of Jesus Christ so that in the world, when we bear witness to Jesus and the truth of the gospel in the world, the world looks back and says, I see the love. I see the grace. I see the joy. But the Galatians had lost that joy. They had lost that passion. They had backslidden, not into worldliness, but into legalism. And that means that the work must go on. Well, what characterizes 
pastoral work. Let me give you three things this morning that characterize that work that takes us to the hope. Here's the first thing, mutual love. Look at it again, verse 12. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, I became like you. Now what he means there is that he is a Jewish follower of Jesus, a Pharisee, a man familiar with the law, comes to Gentile people who don't have the law, and he became as they were in order to reach them. This is called contextualization. It's incarnational ministry. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is God did not stand up in heaven yelling at us saying, hey, hey, come up here. That's not what he did. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. God did not stand at a distance saying, I'm over here, catch me if you can. God came among us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so all ministry looks like, let me go where you are and become as you are so I can take you where you need to go. I became as you are, become as I am. What motivates a person to make that kind of sacrifice? You know, it took a lot for Paul. I'm still learning what it means to be a Floridian. I don't know. I don't know all the, I know now I better pack some flip-flops because it's going to rain and I don't want my shoes to be ruined. I just know that I'm going to have to have my hurricane kit ready in the next couple of weeks and stack up the, the jugs of water and the gallons of gasoline and have the generator ready to go just in case, not prophesying, I gave up prophesying years ago but I'm still learning. It takes a lot to learn a new language, to learn a new culture, and that's what he did. But it's interesting how he got there. It says here in this text, you did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Indeed, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Now, there's a lot of speculation from scholars about what this illness was. Nobody knows for sure. Some people say, well, he must have had some kind of eye infection thing going on because they said he would rip out your eyes. Actually, where Paul was in that part of the world, um, where, he would have, where he would have landed from a, a perspective of the, the ship coming in, there, would, there, would have, there was a lot of malaria. And when people did have malaria in those days, they would go up into higher elevations, which is where these cities were, in order to, in order to it was thought, recover from that infection. They would more easily recover. So perhaps it was malaria. And Paul went, in order to recover, up into these higher elevation and other areas. And there, because of illness, driven there, he had the opportunity to preach the gospel. That's the kind of person Paul was. He wanted to preach the gospel to everyone he knew everywhere he went. He would be in the hospital preaching to people. Do you know, there's no better evangelist, no better hospital evangelist I've ever met than Ron Tobias. Ron Tobias, when he goes to the hospital, just preaches to everybody in the hospital. I told him he needed to stop it so that he wouldn't keep going. But he can't help it. He just gives the gospel to people everywhere he goes. No, that's such a witness to us. That's such a testimony to us that we take advantage of every opportunity to share Christ with people. That's what Paul did. He loved them, and they loved him back. When it says, you'd have ripped your eyes out and given them to me, that's probably a figure of speech. Kind of like you'd have ripped the shirt off your back and given it to me. It's a figure of speech. It's hyperbole. What it means is you'd have given me whatever it took to help me get better 
See, Paul had a relationship with him, and I want to say that about real shepherding leadership. Leadership in the Christian church that creates the formation of Christ in the life of the people is embedded care. It is not virtual care. Now, I'm very grateful that we can gather people online. I'm very thankful for that. People can listen to a podcast. I think that's wonderful. I think that's great. But listen to me, friends. You, there is no such thing as a TV pastor. There are TV preachers, but there are not online pastors. When there is a season in the church when it was shut down, that's the best you could do. We did all that we could, but that's the... That's the extraordinary. That's not the normative. Never take the extraordinary and turn it into the normative. The way ministry works is face-to-face, in-person relationships. They had a close, personal relationship. And there's a reason for that, because not only are people helped by that person-to-person ministry, can I tell you a, can I tell you a secret? Pastors not only create churches, churches create pastors. Churches shape the lives of those who serve them. And when that occurs and it takes place over a period of years, your stories, what God's doing in your life, the interaction that we have over those things, that deeply personal encounter, that serving of one another testifies to the love of Jesus in the world. It was a a year ago this week, this coming week, that I suffered a mysterious bite and infection and ended up in the intensive care unit. And you said, well, that's just great. He's only been here a little while now. We got to take care of him. (laughs) That was what everybody said, right? That isn't what you said. No, what you said. You prayed and you cared and you, you, you sought our best. And I was laying there thinking, this is such a ripoff from the enemy. I wanted to, I'm, just, I'm just here. I want to spend more time with people. And now here I am stuck in the hospital. And instead of that, what happened was it, that season of suffering more deeply embedded my heart and Tony's heart and his heart. It more deeply embedded us in each other's hearts because God uses those seasons to knit our hearts together so that we're one in Christ. And the love of Jesus is something we share with each other. Friends, you're, you and I, all of the people who are, who are serving you have a relationship through the Holy Spirit that allows the love of Jesus Christ to be seen in us. And this mutual love leads to trust for the transmission of biblical truth. That's the next thing. Pastors have to be faithful with biblical truth. Look down here in verse 16. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? You know, it's very important that we understand the the task of ministers. Ministers are not here to tell you what you want to hear. Paul describes that pathology in Timothy, where he says to Timothy, you make sure that you're faithful in preaching the scriptures, because people have a certain condition called itching ears. They are afflicted with itching ears. They want somebody to tell them what they want to hear. And sometimes the truth cuts against the grain and it's very uncomfortable. Pastors have to study the scriptures. 
Your group leaders have to study the scriptures, they have to learn them, they have to teach them, and they have to tell the truth. And pastors have to tell the truth of the Bible unswervingly, not only the whole context of scripture, but where the truth intersects with, with where the need of the moment is, where the controversy is of that day. Martin Luther said, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if you flinch at that point. In our culture right now, there are battle points. And pastors have to speak with both clarity and charity, with conviction and compassion, so that the church is strengthened in its witness, and people are not deceived, and people are not deluded. And I'll tell you, we will never, ever compromise. We will never compromise on the inerrancy of Scripture, on the deity of Christ. We'll never compromise on human sexuality. We will never compromise on those issues. And the reason we cannot compromise on those issues is because we are the Lord's by creation and by redemption, and we are not home yet, but he is at work in us by his spirit and grace to form us to the image of Christ. And that means we're going to keep feeding the church with the truth of the gospel. Martin Luther went on to say, peace if possible, truth at all costs. But the only way that really happens is this, prayer. Churches and Christian leaders have to be passionate about prayer. You see this down here, and I know it's Father's Day, but you'll permit me an OBGYN reference here. <laughs> Verse 19, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I'm in the pains of childbirth. Paul was groaning like a mother giving birth to a child. When this kind of language is used, it's highlighting specifically prayer in Colossians 4 and Romans 8. That's the image here. How does Paul pray? Paul doesn't pray in such a way that people would go, oh, what a lovely prayer. Nobody sees a woman in labor and goes, oh, that's just lovely. <laughs> what a, no, it's beautiful, but it's painful. Yeah. So Paul's praying, birth pangs, groaning internal pain, crying out. Romans chapter eight, the whole creation is groaning. We are groaning. The Holy Spirit groans within us with words that are beyond our own capacity for utterance. My friends, the life of prayer in the life of the church is absolutely crucial. Listen, you can have love for one another and you can even have faithful preaching, but if the fires of prayer go out, you will never see a visitation of the Spirit of God in the measure that God intends it. But where the church will humble itself and pray, pray for one another, pray together, fall on our faces before God, the way Paul did, with, with not just polite prayers, not pretty prayers, but groaning prayers. 
passion in the praying. Falling on your face. There's prayer and there's desperation. God, God, you have to move. Where's the desperation? Where's the holy hope? When the fires of the Holy Spirit ignite in our souls, when we see the need in the church, when we see the brokenness in the world, we cannot shrug our shoulders and ask, well, what, what, what? I wish God would do something more when all the time he's saying, I want you to be the instrument through which I will move in the world. Come and humble yourself before me and seek my face and see what the Lord will do. My friends, we've, we've had enough in the contemporary church of guys who think their task is to build platforms instead of build the church. We need missionaries, not celebrities. We need prophets who will agonize in prayer rather than entertainers who are hoping for applause. And please remember that in this kingdom, all the shepherds are sheep. Every one of us who lead are conscious every day that we too are sinners saved by grace. And the only way we can carry on the work is by the gospel that Paul is preaching here. I tell you the truth, long before we preach the gospel on a Sunday, we preach it to each other Monday through Saturday. We preach it to each other. Friends, preach the gospel to each other. Remind each other of the good news that God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. Preach the gospel to each other. Remind each other that shame and guilt and fear are banished because of what Jesus has done. Remind each other that we cannot save ourselves, but we have been saved. That nothing we have done can bring us to God, but what Christ has done can bring us all the way to God. Remind each other that we have no righteousness of our own, but we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us and received by faith in Jesus Christ. And remind each other that there is only one perfect shepherd. Only one. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. The writer of Hebrews says he is the great shepherd who rose from the dead to bring our souls to heaven. Peter said he is the chief shepherd under whom all other shepherds do their works. My friends, the psalmist said, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And that includes the little lambs he carries in his arms. Never forget, friends, that children are not the church of the future. They're the church right now. The lambs belong to the flock. That's why we baptize them. They're in, and we raise them. We don't put them in another pen and say, you go over there, you little lamb. We'll get back to you. We're not sure. You might be a goat. We'll get back to you. 
No, we baptize them and raise them in the faith and we teach them to trust in Christ. And the little lambs are carried in gently in his arms and you're all part of the one flock that exists in the whole world. And the good shepherd laid down his life for you. And yes, there are wolves and yes, there are lions, but he's got the staff and he will fight them back. He is the, the, the great shepherd who did die on the cross but did rise again and he will come again with glory and he is the chief shepherd who oversees all other leadership. And, and friends, you can depend on him. He is no butcher. He will not stand behind you and drive you. He will not beat you but with his rod and staff, he will comfort you. He will not scream at you. He will call to you. And he says to every one of us in his flock this morning, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. You will find rest for your souls. He is the Lord, our shepherd. He leads us beside quiet waters. He brings us to quiet streams. He is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. He will bring us to the Father's house where we will dwell forever. And his goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. No church can save you. No pastor is worthy of the trust that you must place only and exclusively in the hands, the nail-scarred hands, of the good, great, and chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him. Follow him. Follow the shepherd the apostle Paul followed all the way home to the Father's house. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Lord, we come before you this morning as the people of your pasture and the sheep of your hand. We need the heart of Jesus beating in our heart. We need the heart of the good shepherd in our own chests. And so, Lord, I pray that mutual love and commitment to truth and passionate prayer would characterize the work of all in this church who lead in whatever sphere in which they serve. And I pray that you would knit our hearts together in that community of grace. And I pray that the hope the apostle had, that Christ will be formed in you, would find its fruition in us. Jesus, form your life in us by your spirit so that when people see the church, they will see Christ. We long for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.